Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about the remarkable compliance transformation at one of the world's biggest food producers. I'm your host, Bill Coffin, and this is The Ethicast. JBS Foods is a leading global food company that processes, prepares, packages, and delivers fresh, further processed, and value-added premium protein products for sale to customers in approximately 100 countries on six continents. With more than 250,000 team members and operations in 15 countries, JBS is the number one global beef producer, the number one global poultry producer, the number two global pork producer, and the mothership for major brands such as Pilgrims and Primo. It's safe to say that if you haven't yet eaten a JBS product, you probably know someone who has. Over the last several years, JBS has made substantial efforts to not only deepen and expand its ethics and compliance program, but more importantly, it has done so with an eye towards the future sustainability of the program itself. With us today to talk about some of the great ethics and compliance work underway at JBS is its Global Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, Mike Koenig. Prior to his current role, Mike served as the Head of Ethics and Compliance for Pilgrims, a JBS brand. He previously spent nearly 25 years as an attorney defending companies, individual executives, and public officials in criminal, civil, and regulatory matters. He was also a federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Bill, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your ethics and compliance program has undergone considerable growth and transformation. Can you talk about that journey and how you feel that your program is delivering value across the breadth and depth of your organization? Sure. Well, Bill, I think journey is the right word for it. Compliance programs are never done. Never a moment in time where you say we're done. They have stages. You have creation, development, implementation, monitoring, testing, review, revision, and caretaking. There's a whole host of those things. And at various points in time, you're always doing several of those things at once. So it is a journey, and you're right to characterize it that way. So taking a step back, in October of 2020, JBS entered into settlement agreements with the Department of Justice and the SEC. Not uncommon for big companies, multinational. You run into issues. So we had settlement agreement. And as a result of that settlement agreement, we were compelled to create an effective compliance program. Your practitioners will be familiar with attachment C to the DOJ settlement agreements, which imposes upon companies what's expected of an effective compliance program. We're giving three years to do it. And one of the things the company did, and this was really, I thought, a tremendous thing, was it decided not just to satisfy attachment C, not just to build an effective compliance program to meet the requirements, but instead to take a step back and build a long-standing during compliance programs so that once we satisfied the Department of Justice and the SEC, we would have a program that would extend in perpetuity to be successful. And that really started with our company's leadership. You, know, you have to have, to build an effective compliance program, leadership support from the boards to the um, business unit leaders, teams, to your operational unit heads. So it really is a team effort and it was a team decision to take that broad-based approach and not just satisfy the Department of Justice and the SEC. Obviously, that was a primary consideration. Had to do that. But we also thought that if we built a long-standing program, we would have the benefit of both satisfying the DOJ and the SEC, as well as building a long-standing effective compliance program. So what we did was we took a step back. It's always easy, and I think companies tend to put band-aids on the problem. And that, that's not uncommon. 
not unique to JBS. It's not unique to any company I've ever dealt with. You just should fix the immediate problem. What we did was we took a step back and we decided to take a holistic approach that we could build this long-term program and not just, you know, put your finger in the dam that's leaking at this particular moment. As a result of doing that, we looked at two things. We looked at the way the department was structured and its personnel. And then we looked at the substance of the program. You have to have both things. You can't run a program if you're not structured correctly. So what we did when I joined the company in August of 2021 was we looked at our department. Did we have the right people in place? Were, were they putting their time and efforts into the right things? We got we hired some more experienced people. We hired a variety of different types of people who had different backgrounds than just being lawyers. And we can talk about that later. And then once we had that in place, we looked at what are the pillars of an effective compliance program. And I'm sure your practitioners are familiar with the Department of Justice's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. That is the Bible that every chief compliance officer should start with. Because it's one of the things that, in my opinion, the department extremely well over the past several years. In June 19th, first time in March of 2023, they made some revisions to it. And it's about a 20 page playbook of what the Department of Justice expects to see in an effective compliance program. So when you take that guiding document along with attachment C to our we kind of had a plan to go forward and we looked at both of those things. And you know the pillars of an effective compliance program are the same for every company. Are you doing risk assessments? What's your top? You have the right policies in place. Are you training people? Are you communicating? Are you testing yourself? Do you have internal controls? Do you have a robust ethics line where you're investigating and concluding all people who about who call in about allegations and complaints? So when you take that broad-based approach, that's what the company decides to do. And it, it, it's been a tremendous undertaking, actually. And it really does start with the company making the decision that we are going to have a world-class ethics and compliance program. And that starts with the leadership, plain and simple. So what is an insight or practice that you have learned from an external organization that you've incorporated into your own program? And conversely, what is something about your program that you think might help other organizations if they knew about it? Well, that's a good question because there really is no one thing I could point to that we took from some other company or that some company could take from us. It's really a compilation of information, starting with the DOJ pronouncements that we just talked about, as well as DOJ leadership of the Department of Justice constantly out there giving about their expectations. So you have to start with that because that's what people expect. And then what you do by attending conferences, by reading the literature that comes out there, pick and choose, and it, it forms your decision. And one thing about compliance programs is every going to have its own program. There's no one size fits all. The Department of Justice recognizes that. You've got to tailor your compliance program to your company's risks, to your company's needs, your company's geography. So what you do is you, you get it formed by what other companies have done. And I think that that's what other companies have done. Now, certainly there are a couple of specific things we've done. I learned from one of the chief compliance officers who I consulted with when I first started, the need to have not just lawyers in your compliance department. You've got to have auditors. You've got to have accountants. You've got to have analysts. And that's, so I, that's something that I took. The idea of clean and simple policy is something else I borrowed from others. Um, I've also learned from other chief compliance officers need to delegate appropriately to spend time on the things that need to be spent on. You know, if I had to, if hiring was a priority, then I had to let other things sit on the back burner while I attended to the hiring. If we had a Department of Justice meeting coming up, that had to be my singular focus so I could delegate the remaining work to others in my department or we have to sit. So it's a matter of prioritizing. Now, the things that we've done, um, I think it's twofold. First of all, if you're under DOJ settlement and SEC settlement agreements. One of the things we did is we worked with the Department of Justice. You know, 
the compliance universe is different than the litigation universe. You know, in my former, I was representing clients who were indicted. It tends to be a lot more adversarial. When I joined this company, we already had settlement agreements. And compliance by its nature is, is far less adversarial than litigation. So one of the things, and the Department of Justice and the SEC encourage this, is cooperation collaboration with them. It's not fighting with them too much. It doesn't mean you have to roll over and everything the department or the SEC says, but it's a matter of sharing with them what you're doing, getting their feedback. And one of the things I also learned through that process, and I had conversations with friends of mine who were at the SEC in particular, and one person in particular said to me, you know, Mike, we've been doing this for a long time. We evaluate companies every day. Companies that come in here and tell us they're doing everything right, problem. That's just not what the DOJ and the expectations are. Come in and tell us what you're doing well and what's working. Share with us the issues you're having problems with and what your plan is to overcome those problems. And I found that worked really well and encouraged people who have to deal with the DOJ, the SEC, or regular other regulatory agencies to engage in those kind of um, conversations with the department. Um, now, if you're not in a settlement agreement, I think one of we think a number of things well. First of all, we've engaged management. Not they're they're active involvement. When we do trainings, we, the the business leaders, we have management come and actually participate in the training. Look, the voice of business means more to the workforce than the compliance officer. Right? We're supposed to tell people follow the rules, but when it's coming from the business people, that tends to a lot more. So we've involved management in our training. Um, we've identified in our ethics line what we call priority, what I consider the enterprise risk matters, anti-bribery, anti-corruption, antitrust, false documentation, financial mismanagement, and some of the other complaints we receive, like HR complaints, complaints. somebody's called somebody on the plant floor. Well, we don't you know, certainly own that and we address it. We tend to delegate that. Another thing that I think we've done really effectively partnered not just with the business and not just with the business senior manager, but with the operational units, legal, HR, internal audit, communications. We work very closely with those groups as well because they, like compliance, have oversight over the entire company as opposed to like the business, the pork business unit and the chicken business unit. They may not talk as often, but all the rest of us talk a lot and have a good broad view and really engaging the people of Operational in the business level has been a and I think has helped the development um, of the program. And then the other thing we really spent a lot of time doing is, I think that is in many ways the cornerstone of an effective compliance program. When I first started at the company, I spent the first weeks interviewing over 40 senior executives within the company and also people down the chain. The one universal thing they all said that they thought had been lacking was training. And so we, we spent a tremendous amount of time. People generally don't wake up and say, I don't want to follow the rules today. But you got to tell them what the rules are and explain to them why it works. And we spend a lot of time explaining to people why compliance matters. We try and educate people with how compliance can help promote the business and can help promote profit. I gave a presentation a few weeks ago at one of the universities out here in Colorado, and it was called Compliance is Not a Four-Letter Word. So we try and educate and inform. You can't come in as officer and dictate how things are going to be. When people understand how it can promote the business, they're a lot more willing to do so. And so we, we've really instituted a bunch of things like that and have been very, very pleased with um, the successes that we've had.
Ethics doesn't just happen, you need to put in the time. So make sure to register for the 15th Annual Global Ethics Summit, a live and virtual event in Atlanta, Georgia from April 22nd through the 24th. Save $200 by using the code ETHICAST at registration. To learn more, visit attendges.com. JBS is a global organization, more than 100 different brands across six different food product categories produced on so many different continents. So can you talk a bit about how the specific needs and cultures of so many different groups harmonize within the enterprise-wide goals and initiatives of JBS itself? Yeah, I think it starts with communication. There has to be constant communication. And what we did at JBS was in June of 2020, and this is at the insistence of the global uh, chip board um, for JBS SA over in Brazil. And he really wanted to institute a global compliance program. What I had said earlier about how JBS really made a world-class ethics and compliance program, he um, thought about having a global compliance program. And on that, so as part of that, he created a, a senior global ethics and compliance committee, which is comprised of himself. So the chairman of the board is very actively involved in ethics and compliance. Himself, me, and then a number of key regional leaders throughout the, the world, uh, throughout the global footprint. Simultaneous with that, the company appointed and named me as the global ethics compliance officer. We never had one before. And the idea is for us to, we meet at least quarterly, if not more often, to discuss how we can harmonize the programs from all, all over the world. And it's not necessarily to make them identical or uniform, it's to make them consistent. Obviously, one of the things is we've created certain global policies, global ABAC policy, anti-bribery, corruption, because that touches on everywhere. We've created global conflict of interest policies, a global mergers and acquisition policy, some others. And then what we do is we have, in addition to global committee meetings, we also have regional calls once a month. And everybody from uh, who heads uh, the region that they're in, we have an hour, hour and a half call that I lead to discuss how we can continue to bring the programs closer and closer together. Again, not see necessary uniformity, but at least consistency. That's been very effective. And then the matter of just constant communication, sharing with each other in real time issues that arise. And one of the things I think that is important for an effective compliance program, you talk about value that we can bring to companies, and that is addressing problems in real time. Bill, there's one thing I've learned in the past 30 years of practicing law, problems do not go away. And I think too many companies, too many times think, well, if we just let it stay in the corner, it's going to go away. It never happens. Problems metastasize. They grow. So one of the things JBS, and I think it's been effective, is when an issue arises, we deal with it. It's easier to put out a spark than a flame, a flame than a fire, a fire than inferno. Unfortunately, you know, having practiced defense work for a majority of my career, a lot of companies wait until the inferno is happening. And the inferno in the corporate world is usually FBI agents standing at your door with a subpoena or search warrant. A big concern amongst ethics and compliance teams right now is ensuring that their programs don't get cut back due to future budget cuts. So what are some of the ways that you are building sustainable growth into the ethics and compliance program at JBS? Well, you do have to understand that, look, companies are business. So, so you have to have the budget process. No, no ethics and compliance office, no legal office has a, a, an open. And nor do they need to. Now, one of the ways budgeting issues is the words of the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice over the past six years has made it very clear that they expect companies to invest in compliance. 
and it's everywhere, right? In the evaluation of corporate compliance program, they ask three questions. One of the questions is, is a compliance resource to do its work? Uh, October 4th, just a couple months ago, Deputy Attorney General Monaco gave first minute of the speech she talked about how she expects and the department expects companies to invest in compliance and later in the speech she said that you should invest in compliance now or pay a price cause perhaps a significant price later so the message from the department of justice is you better put your resources into compliance because that's what we expect to happen the other way to go about it from the budgeting standpoint is you have to make the business case for what so in other words, if I want to add a headcount, I will go and talk to our leadership about how a particular person at this particular cost will save us three or four times that if we had to set it to an outside offer. You have to make a business case for it. I also think you have to realize that budgeting is an ongoing discussion. It's very hard in the litigation world or in the investigation world of compliance. You know what's going to happen six months from now? I make it investigate next September that I didn't foresee. I made my budget at the end of the, the previous year. So I think it's a matter of ongoing discussions. People don't like surprises. Talk to leadership in real time. You know, I always tell, uh, in this situation, tell clients this, I, I preach it here at the company, I would much rather deal with problems than surprises. That's true in the substantive world, and it's true in the budgeting world. I also think you have to realize, as when you're forming budgets, you know, what hills to die on. You have to understand you're not going to get everything you wish for. What are the things I absolutely must have, what I'd like to have, and what are the things that would be nice, but if I don't have, that's okay. So you have to think of budgeting that way as well. I also think you have to build internally trust and confidence that when you go asking for more resources or something, the, the leadership will say, you know what, we trust his judgment or her judgment as a chief compliance officer, that if they're telling me they need this, they need this. So I think it's a combination. Things. But look, we all know that budgeting is a tough process. But again, I think having discussions, having them candid, having them in real time, having them often, you know, helps do that. And then the final piece of the budgeting shows success. Like we went through the process with the DOJ and NFC. We recently completed our three-year settlement agreement. So you can go to leadership and say, look, what we're doing is working. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really illuminating conversation, and I appreciate you giving us a view into the really great work that you and your team are doing at JVS. Oh, oh Bill, it's my pleasure. And the other thing I'll just end on is what you just said about team. You know, yes, I have the chief compliance officer role. I've got a tremendous team behind me. I've got tremendous support from leadership. And then, you know, we work very closely with the legal function. And, you know, you've got one of the best councils I've ever met. There are, you know, few is good and none better. Our chief legal officer actively involved in this stuff. So your word team is really critical to the success of an effective compliance program within a company. Couldn't have said it better myself. Michael, thank you so very much. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. To learn more about governance and compliance at JBS, as well as its culture, leadership, and sustainability efforts, please visit jbsfoodsgroup.com and click on the Our Purpose tab. And for a library of free resources on ethical culture, corporate governance, and compliance program structure and authority, check out the Ethisphere Resource Center at ethisphere.com resources. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been the Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on any of our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music.
Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.